We're going to continue our study today, uh, God Questions. Uh, today, why choose any faith? Now, we, this is our, really our third week. We had intro to God Questions, like why this is important. And last week, we, we tackled a difficult subject, is God real? And uh, today, uh, why choose any faith? Um, an important announcement was made on July 4th, 2012, in the field of particle physics. You know, maybe you're not up on that. Um, this announcement was so big that a thousand scientists stood in line all night long to get into the room where the announcement would be made. The head of the Large Hadron Collider, a $10 billion facility, um, was about to give what many anticipated would be a groundbreaking pronouncement about the discovery of what has been called the Higgs boson particle, sometimes called the God particle. This subatomic particle has been theorized for over 50 years and has never been seen, never measured, and never proven. An article in the New York Times, let's see if we have that quote here. Confirmation of the Higgs boson or something very much like it would constitute a rendezvous with destiny for a generation of physicists who have believed in the boson for a half a century without seeing it. So what do you make of that? 50 years of faith. 50 years of people believing in something they've never seen. This is the realm of science. Science practice faith every day, operating in a world of probability, not absolute certainty. Not all scientists like to admit it, but scientists live by faith. In fact, everyone lives by faith to some extent. Um, and we're going to, uh, oh, I just come un, unstuck. We're going to seek to answer the question, why choose any faith? If you're a follower of Christ, you know what? You need wisdom. If you're going to delve into these questions, and if you're going to ever help anyone understand faith, you need wisdom. If you're not a follower of Christ, and you want answers to these questions, you need wisdom. The book of Proverbs is about wisdom. Um, if you study the book, the entire book is about wisdom. It's called Wisdom Literature. A good definition of wisdom, actually from the book of Proverbs, is wisdom is the art of skillful living. Wisdom is the art of skillful living. So I'm going to uh, show a couple of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 12 here, wisdom is personified, meaning wisdom speaks like a person. And it says, I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. Next slide. Verse 17. I, wisdom, love those who love me. Do you love wisdom? Wisdom loves you. And those who seek me, find me. Uh, if you search for True wisdom, you can find true wisdom. That's what the scriptures tell us. Now think about this. Philosophy is what? The love of wisdom. A philosopher is a lover of wisdom. And uh, the Bible says, if you search for true wisdom, you can uh, find it. Proverbs 8, verses 33 through 35. This is... Wisdom speaking, listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. 
Blessed are those who listen to me watching daily at my doors. It's like, hey, pay attention. Watch for it. Look for wisdom. Watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me, find life. You find true wisdom, you're going to find life. We know from Scripture, it's also talking about a quality of life now, but a quality of life eternally. And receive favor from the Lord. God's favor. Those who seek true wisdom can find God's favor. Another word for that would be grace. Last passage is Proverbs 4, verse 7. The beginning, uh, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. Point is, it's pretty high value here. It's like above all else, get wisdom. I, I actually like the NIV 1984 just a little bit better. It says, wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. So let's search for wisdom this morning. Uh, follow along on your outline. There should be an outline in your program. The first point is recognize that you have a faith path. In fact, everyone operates within a worldview by faith. Everyone has faith. And there are numerous examples of your faith path. For example, you exercise faith when you sat down at breakfast this morning. Now, some of you skip breakfast, I know, so this doesn't apply to you. But you ate breakfast believing that that food would not harm you and that nobody had poisoned your food in the night and it had not um, been contaminated, contaminated. You exercise faith when you got into your car and turned the key believing that that engine would turn over and fire up and start to roll. Um, but you know what? There's no guarantees, is there? Don't tell me if your car didn't start, but there are no guarantees that your car will start. There's a probability that your car will start. You exercise faith when you put your car into gear and put your foot on the accelerator, trusting that your car would move in the right direction. You exercise faith driving down the road on the right side. Think of this. How much faith does it take to drive down the road on the right side? Just driving down the road on the left side. And you trusted that nobody else would decide to change lanes, that they would drive on the right side, you would drive on the right side, and life would be good. Um, so when it comes to faith, here's the question. Does your faith reflect an accurate view of truth? Does your faith reflect an accurate view of truth? Now, some acts of faith are really, you know, quite simple. You, you hit your light switch, and you're trusting that the light goes on. You don't have to know anything about electricity to make that happen or to believe it. Uh, some matters of faith are way more complicated. Like, is there such a thing as absolute truth? We could pass a mic around this morning and we would have opinions about that. Is there really a God? We talked about that last week. Is there really a heaven? Is there really a hell? Um, that requires uh, quite a bit more effort to uh, think through and to investigate. How do you arrive at answers to the questions of life? I like a quote of Mark Middleburg. Uh, 
He spent quite a bit of time shopping for a bicycle, and here's what he had to say. Many of us spend more time reading up on, and researching and seeking wisdom about decisions that are low to moderate importance, like what bike to purchase, which car or SUV to drive, what clothes to wear for special occasions, what shrubs or flowers to plant in the garden, which university to attend, or you fill in the blank. Next slide. More, more than we, we spend more time on those things than we do on mon monumental issues like where our faith is currently focused and whether it's well-placed or ought to be redirected to more deserving objects, objects and tenets of faith. And that's an excellent book, by the way, and I have been heavily influenced by that book uh, in preparing today. Um, so in Choosing Your Faith, uh, Mark Middleberg says that he spent hours researching online to buy a bicycle. Uh, what brand should he buy? Should he get a carbon fiber frame for his bike? Should he, uh, what kind of wheels should he have? What kind of tires should he buy? What's he going to need? He's, buy, he's buying a mountain bike. What particular kind of brakes would he need? What kind of derailleur would be best? This required research. It took time. Um, he needed to make the best choice because this mountain bike costs more than a motorcycle. So, have you ever done research like that before? Before a major purchase? And yet, there, there are things that we do research for in decision making. But when it comes to big issues, big life issues, do we put that kind of research into making decisions, for example, about faith? How do you arrive at answers to important questions? How much time have you put into the important questions of life? So, uh, everybody uh, has a faith path. Secondly, examine your faith path. Examine your faith path. Now, one of my heroes back when I was a philosophy student in college was Socrates. He had to dabble in philosophy. And uh, let's see what Socrates writes. He said, uh, the unexamined life is not worth living. I thought that was so cool when I read that the first time, heard about it, philosophy professor would quote it a lot, the unexamined life. And I thought, that's so true. And uh, it seems like so many people don't really examine their lives. And of course, I hadn't really examined my life, but it was really cool to say that. And uh, Socrates didn't write, but Plato wrote uh, for uh, Socrates. The unexamined life is not worth living. Um, People respond in different ways and different approaches when it comes to the questions of faith. How do you choose your views about God? So what we're going to do now is we're going to examine six different views of how people come to faith, the issue of faith. Now see if any of these cross some of your uh, paths. First, the relativistic approach. Uh, this approach holds that truth is not absolute. Truth is relative to each individual person. Uh, this is an extremely, extremely popular view today. It allows for tolerance on truth issues. The issue is, what is true for you? What works for you? If it works for you, it's okay. It doesn't make any difference if it works for me. All truth is relative. Morals are relative to each person. If something is true for you, great. It may not be true for me. For example, if Christianity is true for you, 
great. But if Hinduism works better for you, that's great too. Um, if atheism is a better choice and you like that, good. If you like reincarnation and that works for you, great. If you prefer Buddhism, great. Just don't push your views on me because we, we shouldn't be tolerant. But that's not how life really works, is it? For example, let's say this afternoon, um, right after the football game, of course, you get on I-94 and you decide today the 94 means 94 miles an hour for me. That's truth for me. And you encounter State Patrol and he says, that's not my truth. And uh, it, truth won't be relative on that on that occasion. Uh, do you want him to be tolerant? Do you expect him to be tolerant? Probably not. So that's the relativistic approach to faith. And you hear that. People, the primary reason they take it, people often take that without thinking. What they like about it is tolerance. And what they like about it, it means I'm okay, you're okay. This is what I think, that's what you think, great. Uh, the next one is called the traditional approach. This, this is about the influence of important people in our lives, like our parents, like growing up in the church, or like growing up and your, your family believed this, and this is what they talked about, and you came into your young years or your early adult years with this kind of worldview from your family, a traditional view. Um, it could be very good. It could be very moral. It could be very helpful. But it also could be dangerous or even misleading. The issue is my faith perspective was passed on down to me by my family or other key influencers. Um, key influencers like coaches, I would say athletic coaches had a major influence on my life. I never knew one of them that went to church when I was growing up. That had started to have a little bit of an influence on me. College professors had major influence on my way of thinking. Um, this is very powerful, um, and it's all about what you grew up with. It could be very moral. It could be atheistic. You could grow up in a home where your parents are atheistic, and that just seems to make sense. That's what we talked about. It seems to be practical. You could be Wiccan. That's the way we viewed things. That's what we talked about at home. That's my perspective. It's a traditional view. And my point is, it should be examined and not blindly accepted. Um, traditional views impact our views about things like religion, uh, ethnicity or race, education. It, it affects our views on alcohol and drugs. It even affects our views on eating disorders. It's what we grow up, up with. What's in our home? What did we experience? What was life really like? And so here's the thing about a traditional view. It can make it very hard for people to consider the truth and make a commitment to the truth. For example, it is very difficult for a person with a Jewish background to consider becoming a Christian. It's difficult for a Hindu in India to convert to anything else. It's difficult for a Roman Catholic in Poland to become an evangelical Christian. Uh, it's difficult for a Mormon in Utah 
to become a Protestant. And all I'm saying, tradition is extremely powerful. Um, certainly had those kind of encounters with young couples when it comes time for a brand new baby and my parents think we should baptize the baby and I'm wondering if we should dedicate our baby. It's really practical questions. It's because of family and the influence of our families and you have to determine how you're going to handle that situation. Jesus encountered tradition in the New Testament. Here's what Jesus had to say in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7 so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of elders? There were some things here that weren't in the scriptures, but it was their tradition, their practice. Instead of eating their food with defiled hands, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites as it is written. Next slide. These people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teach, teaching, teachings are merely human rules. Here's the point. It's possible for people to be very religious and have strong religious tradition and really miss the truth. Uh, he says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And so Jesus is elevating the word of God, the commands of scripture to the traditions of men. So that's the uh, traditional approach. The next one uh, is the authoritarian approach. And this one is much like the traditional approach, except uh, it operates by using fear to control behavior. It's more intense than, intense than the traditional approach. Um, the issue here is this view is promoted by fear of ostracism. The authoritarian could be a parent. You could have a parent that tries to control you and control your religious views by fear. Um, it could be a religious leader. And the approach here is you should believe this because I said so. That's... Um, the authoritarian approach. It's like, I'm powering up, I have more power than you, and you better do what I say. Um, it pressures people to follow. It can border on mind control. It is religious abuse. It shames people into compliance. If you leave, you will be rejected. That's the attitude. If you leave, you will not be loved. If you leave, God will condemn you. That's the kind of pressure of an authoritarian approach. Um, and this sometimes is a, a tactic of cults. And that's sort of how they keep people in. However, there's more of a sophisticated way of this authoritarian approach. Uh, it can come, for example, in a college classroom where a professor makes innuendos that uh, Christians who believe in God are really not thinking people or must not really be educated people. Um, and um, in a situation like this where a professor may poke fun at Christians, it can leave uh, a student feeling embarrassed and doubting their faith. Um, 
And by the way, this authoritarian approach to faith, parents, is absolutely a terrible way to raise your kids. Sometimes you do it and you don't realize it when you pressure your kids. Now, there's a lot of ways to lead children to make wise decisions and to learn about scripture and to learn about obedience. And you treat a five-year-old like a five-year-old, not like a 10-year-old. And you treat a 10-year-old like a 10-year-old, not like a 15-year-old. But when you begin to manipulate and coerce, you're heading into dangerous waters. Here's the thing. When it comes to religious views, we should be tolerant with people. Tolerant with people. Tolerant with views. Not tolerant with truth. Okay? Um, so, you know what? It's good that we live in a country where we have a free will to choose our faith. It's good that we live in a country where there is religious tolerance and people have a choice. They can think. You know, some of you might get uncomfortable with that. You know, but it's good because, you know what? The gospel is, is an offer of a free choice. We have, God has given us a free will to choose. And he wants us to think and make a decision that we can uh, stand with, that we can that we can uh, commit to. Not that somebody pressured us into some kind of agreement or decision. Okay. Uh, the fourth approach is the intuitive approach. This is about trusting your instincts, trusting your gut, allowing your emotions to direct your choice. The issue is, it just feels right. This is why I do this. This is why I believe this, because it just feels right. And certainly instincts are good. They can be very helpful. Sometimes your gut reaction uh, may be right and maybe just what you need in a crisis. Uh, you make a gut reaction it just senses something wrong and you want to get away and it's the right thing to do. Uh, God gave you emotions so that you can experience life. Emotions help us validate life. God didn't necessarily give us emotions so that we would make decisions. So I gave you a brain. He didn't necessarily want you to make decisions by your emotions. Um, emotions must be placed in check to consider objective reality. For example, for Christians, our emotions must be subject to what the scriptures say. If our emotions uh, somehow violate scripture, if a decision that our, we would come to with our emotions violates scripture, Maybe our emotions aren't accurate, or maybe our, our, our emotions aren't correct. Um, so this is the uh, intuitive method. It just feels right. Here's an example. I remember uh, being in a pastoral counseling setting with a woman sitting across from me, and uh, she was there because she was in an, an adulterous affair. And... Um, she said that she didn't feel loved by her husband. However, when she was in the arms of someone else's husband, she felt love. And then she said, it feels so right. God couldn't be against that. It feels so right. And I would just say, you know what? God has already been published on that one. 
He already has an opinion. He spoke a long time ago about the subject, and it's not about how she feels. Anybody remember the Star Wars movie? How many saw the original in 1977? Some of you weren't born yet. That's right. <laughs> There's a scene where um, Obi-Wan Kenobi is with Luke, and he's mentoring him about the Force, and Luke is having trouble with his lightsaber, and uh, Obi-Wan is saying, Luke, um, don't trust your eyes. Let go of your consciousness. Trust the force. And that was such a cool thing, you know, back in 1977. And this, you know, delving into this area and this, this realm that we weren't used to. And uh, it's also pretty dangerous because actually the movie had quite an impact on our culture over time. And it wasn't just the movie, but it's what was happening in our world. Um, in 1999, George Lucas was interviewed and he said this. That is what the use, the force is, a leap of faith. There are mysteries and powers larger than we are, and you have to trust your feelings in order to access them. This is the intuitive argument. So we're not saying feelings aren't important, but it's not just about your feelings. There's more to reality than how someone feels. Uh, the fifth one is the mystical approach. This uh, focuses on some, someone's religious or spiritual experience. Uh, this one is about, the issue is, God spoke to me. How do you argue with anyone who says, God spoke to me? I mean, is that your experience? Not my experience, but if you said that, how can I ever argue that? Um, now, I, I agree that God speaks to people, and he can speak in an audible voice. He's never spoken in an audible voice to me. He's spoken very, powerful, very powerfully to me in the scriptures, and I've been prompted by the Holy Spirit to obey and to, and to take a step of faith. I, but he's never spoken to me in an audible voice. Do I think he could speak to you in an audible voice? I think he sure could. He sure has done it in the past. Um, but this whole issue, God told me. Um, and not only is it, God, let me develop this before I come back to answering this. Um, it's, it's someone saying they experience God telling them something. Uh, it could be an angel giving them a message. It could be uh, their, you know, their dead grandmother spoke to them in a dream. When, when people say things like that, when they have an experience... Um, this is the mystical approach. And they're beginning to act on this information. A great example in history is uh, Joseph Smith. In 1820, the angel Moroni came to him and, uh, in a dream and directed him to dig up metal plates that were buried. And these metal plates had uh, a hieroglyphic type of writing on them, and they could only be interpreted by wearing rose-colored glasses. And so Joseph Smith did this. And out of that came the Book of Mormon. And uh, it was all about this experience. An angel spoke to me. And um, the, the point I'd make here is that feel does not equal real. Feelings don't always equal reality. 
having an experience, a spiritual experience, may not necessarily be the way things really are. It may not be an accurate experience. Um, For example, if you just take the Book of Mormon that was given by the angel Moroni to Joseph Smith, um, the Book of Mormon says there was a lost tribe of Israel, an ancient civilization that surfaced in the United States. And uh, if you study, for example, archaeology, there is no ancient civilization here, no ancient civilization of Israel here. There should be all kinds of things, just like there are in Israel, that show where cities were, or people, or a culture existed. There is none. And they also said that this tribe of Israel here is really the forerunner of Native Americans. And there is no DNA proof that Native Americans have an Israeli DNA, okay? Or, um, and th- that's just an example of something that came from an experience that doesn't really test out with facts. Um, also, that real doesn't equal good, or reality doesn't mean that it's a good uh, situation or that it's from God. A spiritual experience may be real. I think Joseph Smith probably had a real spiritual experience, but it was not necessarily from God. Uh, Scriptures describe situations that are supernatural uh, but have a power that doesn't come from God. It has a power from the dark side. And, you know, you just need to be aware of that. And people need to be aware of that. So, in my opinion, for example, there are many religions in the world, and there are a lot of supernatural stuff that go with some of those religions. And uh, that makes me nervous. Just in, the, in this, some people think, just because it's supernatural, God must be in it. And that's not necessarily true, because there are a lot of supernatural things that have power. Like, I think miracles can happen from the dark side, that the source comes from something demonic. That's, that's possible according to the scriptures. So, uh, real doesn't mean good necessarily. Uh, the scriptures speak to this. 1 John 4, verse 1 says this, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And all I'm saying here, the scripture points out, there can be communications that are real that aren't necessarily from God. They can be supernatural, they can be prophetic, but they may not be from God. And the scripture says to test them. Um, I remember an occasion where uh, I was testing whether, and and I was sort of asked to do this, but somebody was speaking in tongues in my presence. And uh, according to the next verse is those who say that Jesus is Lord and came in the flesh are of the true uh, spirit. And uh, so... As this person was speaking in tongues, I just asked the question to this person, uh, did Jesus Christ come in the flesh? And they they were talking very fast, and all of a sudden they said no, and they just kept going. Well, that would be testing the spirits. And and my understanding of that situation was, that was a situation that's not from God. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 the Apostle Paul says this, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. 
as we've already said, so I now say again, if anybody's preaching to you a gospel other than what you've accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now, Paul had a very strong opinion about anybody messing with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, and it's by faith that we are given eternal life and our sins are forgiven and we become citizens of heaven. Paul says, if you mess with that, I don't care who you are. You could be an angel from heaven. If you do that, you should be accursed. That's what Paul said. He's speaking for God on this occasion. And uh, I do think sometimes angels, not angels from God, but angels that are sourced on the other side, um, can speak and communicate, and we can have supernatural um, communication, super, supernatural power, supernatural events. They are not all from God. So, can you have a real, uh, can God give you, here, I just want to go back and say the, the positive side here. Can God give you a real spiritual experience? Absolutely. You can have an experience with God. He can communicate with you. He can encourage you. He can empower you. You can feel loved. You can feel joy, and it's very real, okay? So I'm not denying any of that. It just all has to be weighed against reality, against truth. The last approach is called the evidential approach. It's about evidence. This is about evaluating the evidence. This is a kind of uh, approach that we would take in the court of law. What are the facts? It must be logical and factual. That's the issue with the evidential approach. It must be logical and uh, factual. So we must find out, if we're going to examine a faith, what are the facts? What do we know? Uh, what, uh, what is the truth about this situation? Is this an idea or concept based on reality? Is it logical? Is there historical evidence? You know, in the courtroom, the way we make decisions is uh, crime it usually happens in the past, right? And so you have to go back to eyewitnesses. You have to create, you have to de determine what happened, what are the facts, what information do we have, what can we prove? We bring it forth. Um, is there archaeological evidence? This is one of the amazing things about the Bible is more and more, and more that we have overwhelming archaeological evidence that support historical information in the Bible. Uh, one of my favorites is um, William Albright of the uh, 19th century, and he was not a Christian. He was a scholar that knew like 20 languages, and the more he hung around the Bible as a non-Christian, the more he sought to go to the pages of the Bible to find about people's and locations, cities, and nations. And he would dig from his best guess according to what the scriptures said. And then he would find a city. He had a tremendous trust in the Bible. And more and more we keep finding out information about historical places uh, of biblical times that corroborate the Bible. These are archaeological evidence. And we have that problem, for example, in searching for a lost tribe of Israel in the United States. There's a problem there. Is this consistent with scientific data? Scientific data is important. Uh, does it give an accurate view of spiritual reality, reality as identified in the religious book? 
Now think about this. You could take any religious book, and I welcome that investigation. Take any religious book and do, does the book uh, stand consistent with truth? Uh, does it stand, how many times has the book been changed, by the way? There are a few religious books out there that have been changed hundreds of times. I won't mention any names. And um, so do they stand the test? Do, 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 and so I'm saying the Bible will stand the test of investigation. Um, so recognize that you have a faith. Examine your faith path. We've just looked at six. Did you see any of the ways that you approach? Are some of you more intuitive? Um, are, are any of you relativistic when it comes to truth? Are any of you traditional? Any, are any of you authoritarian when it comes to truth and passing truth? Uh, how about the evidential approach? And, you know, I'm going to lean on the evidential approach. That seems like to make the most sense to me. Uh, I want to look at everything, look at the evidence. Thirdly, choose your path wisely. Choose your path wisely. And first, consider logical and sci scientific criteria as you consider your faith path. path. Science and logic. First of all, think about this. Engage with me. All truth is God's truth. Say it with me. No, you don't have to. All truth is God's truth. Now, I believe this book is true. I believe this is what God has revealed. It's absolutely true. I view it as absolute truth. Um, but all truth is God's truth. Think about this. God has created a universe. God designed the universe. The universe is very complicated and intricate. And if you study the universe, you can observe things happening that seem to be like they were designed. If you study the human body, you can learn about the human body and you can begin to make assertions or postulates about the human body, like how does the human body work and how do we help the human body when it's sick and how do we do surgery, how do we move, remove problems. It's because, you know what, God designed the human body. So when I think of medical truth, for example, I think, you know what, God designed the human body. He wasn't surprised by this. He, in fact, planned this so that if we would just over time begin to study the human body, we could get it too. There's scientific truth. God designed the universe so that it operates in certain, certain ways. And if we study it, guess what? We can learn some of those principles too. The difference is we don't say these principles are absolute. We say they're probable. Scientific. It's prob probability. So 99 times out of 100 or 99.999, if I drop my Bible, it'll probably hit the floor. You know, that's God designed that. That's why I'm still standing here. I'm not floating in the air. That's gravity. God designed that. All truth is God's truth. Psychology. If you study the human brain, even you could come up with principles that may be accurate. You know, there is truth about the human brain. Now, psychology is not on the same level as medicine because there's, it's a little more subjective. It's not quite as objective. Um, but we still have, we can still learn a ton of information God knows everything about the human mind, and he's allowing us to learn some of those things. So all truth is God's truth. 
All that to make one little point. Uh, same thing is true about weather. You can study meteor meteorology, and uh, you can make predictions about the weather. That's not a, God designed that. And he's just letting us in on it if we just pay attention long enough. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. God hasn't told us everything. We, we have this book, and he's given us all he thinks we need to live. There's enough in that book to live the rest of your life. There's, there's enough in that book for you to study the rest of your life and try to figure it out. But he hasn't told us everything. There are some things he's, that, you know, I'm, I'm waiting until I get to see him face to face, and I'm going to get some answers on some things, because there's a lot of information. And aren't you glad that an infinite God with an infinite mind didn't download his brain on you and me? Um, but there's a lot of truth, and it's very real, and we don't have it all, but there's a whole lot available to us in the universe if we just study it. And so we can, get, you, we can compile a huge amount of evidence by studying things around us, things that declare the glory of God. Um, so when it comes to uh, scientific investigation, we speak in the realm of probabilities, not absolutes. Um, so all truth is God's truth. Secondly, the law of non-contradiction. So now we're going to talk about logic for just a second. Uh, the law of non-contradiction. And very simply, if A contradicts B, B is false. Is it you, am I tricking you here? Um, or A is false and B is true. You with me here? Does this make sense? Or A is false and, and B is false. Seem true to you? This is logic. This is the law of non-contradiction. And what it absolutely says is, a can't be true and B can't be true at the same time. A can't be true and B true at the same time if they contradict each other. Um, that's pretty straightforward logic. There we go. The, the point A and B cannot be true. An example is if atheism contradicts Christianity, either atheism is true and Christianity is false. That makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, or atheism is false and Christianity is true. That makes sense, doesn't it? Or atheism and Christianity are false. And what's the point of that? Is that atheism and Christianity cannot both be true. That's the law of non-contradiction. So we're just using logic here. If you're going to examine your faith path, can you use evidence? Can you use uh, science and uh, logic in making your decision? Also, consider historical and archaeological evidence. I've also already hinted at this a little bit. Our court system is based on an evaluation of the historical evidence, that is, after the fact. Eyewitnesses are interviewed um, and assessed. They're examined and cross-examined. Historians have criteria for studying history. If historians have criteria for studying history, why wouldn't we want to use the same criteria for studying history when we come to the issue of faith? Isn't that valid? Um, evaluate the historical evidence uh, in, in, in uh, assuming a religious perspective. For example, is Christianity historically accurate? 
We ought to be able to study history and to see if the events of Christianity fall within the events of history. Um, we ought to be able to use the same kind of data. When you study history, do eyewitness accounts matter? They sure do. And, well, when it comes to the Bible, do eyewitness accounts matter? Well, yeah, if you're a Christian, they matter. But if you're a non-Christian, nobody cares, right? But here's the deal. If you treat an eyewitness account, you have to be honest with it. And if it says there is a resurrection, you have to consider this whole story. What is the whole story? The problem is many people today, because of an anti-supernatural presupposition, and they, what, what does that mean? It means they come to the story with miracles don't happen, therefore there is no resurrection, therefore this is invalid, without even considering the claims. What if on one occasion there was a miracle? That just blows everything. You know, so in studying history, you have to consider the eyewitness accounts. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're pretty, pretty close to the situation in the life of Jesus. But if you read all of the Old Testament, it's all about eyewitness accounts. So much of the Bible is about an eyewitness account. Uh, we need to evaluate, is this historically accurate? Are there eyewitnesses? Um, this whole issue of, uh, for example, miracles don't happen, therefore Jesus couldn't have healed anyone, Jesus couldn't have fed the 5,000, Moses couldn't have parted the Red Sea, they didn't happen because miracles don't happen. That is not about scientific investigation. That is about what is called scientism. Scientism is about um, miracles don't happen. A lot of scientists take that approach, that science has the answer to everything, and science has the answer, uh, a natural answer for every miracle. And you've heard it. It's scientism. It's not science. It's just a view that somebody has embraced that's become an absolute. Miracles don't happen. Okay, consider textual evidence. Oh, I've taken a lot of time here. Let's see if we can land the plane quickly. Consider textual evidences. There are many passages, and if anybody's going to evaluate, you have to consider the text. And you can consider the text of any religious book. Um, could be the Book of Mormon, could be the Koran. Uh, you should evaluate them like you would any book. Is it historically accurate? Um, did, it, did these things happen as they uh, said? Have they been altered from the original? Does it stand up to archaeology? Several scriptures... I'm going to jump. I'm not going to do all the scriptures here. I'm going to jump to Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Jesus said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Here's my point. Jesus made a claim that God's word would stand. And it wouldn't be changed like 
the dotting of an I or crossing of a T, if we're just using English, that we could count on it. First Peter uh, 1, 24 and 25. Uh, all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Peter is saying, quoting Isaiah, God's word stands, it's eternal, it will stand forever. Um, we won't look at this one. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 tells us that God's word is guided and uh, given by the Holy Spirit. It is indeed the word of God. How about John 14, 6? We can find that one. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus made a claim that there aren't many ways to God. In fact, Jesus made the claim, there's just one. The last one, John 8, 31 and 32 to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, if you study God's word, and if you embrace it, the truth will set you free. Free from the power of sin, free from the power of death, free from shame, free from guilt, free to be the person God wants you to be. So, why choose any faith? Why choose any faith? Well, first of all, remember, you already live by faith. Uh, I want you to think about this. Faith is hardwired into the universe by God. We all operate by faith. It is hardwired into the universe. And think about Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God's plan is for his creation to connect with him by faith. It's about taking God at his word. And the God of the universe wants to connect with us. It, the creator who designed us, created us in his image, who loves us, uh, who has given us a purpose, uh, who has given us the power to live, wants to be in relationship, and it's by faith. You should consider choosing a faith path that connects you with your Creator. Let's stand to pray. Father, I thank you that um, Christianity holds up under scrutiny under investigation, under science, under history, under philosophy, under logic. And I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And Father, enable us to share that with others. And I pray that you would remove obstacles that people have to choosing a faith path. We acknowledge, Father, that without faith, it's impossible to please you. In Jesus' name, amen.